I'll take two. <laughs> My name is Don. I'm an alcoholic. And I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing this morning. My home group is uh, <clears throat> an AA group. The long form of the third tradition says that any two or more alcoholics gathered for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, so we do. We meet in the basement of a community correction center at 6 o'clock every Friday morning. We have very little dead weight at our meeting. I am deeply touched this morning, and it's going to take me a minute. <clears throat> because when I came here, there was no one left on the planet that could or would talk to me except a prison guard. And I have long-standing relationships with people here. Alcoholics Anonymous, for you new people, is a large, large family. But remember, as in any family, there's... Immediate family and there's kissing cousins. And that's why we have so many different groups. And every one of them is important. But find who your real family is. Then hang out with the kissing cousins. <coughs> About five years ago, <clears throat> I had occasion to... Uh, oh. Where I come from, you need to know this. I have been continuously sober since December 26th of 1967. And, uh, and I'm saying that to impress you. <laughs> Not with me. Please don't be impressed with me. I'm just no drunk. But please, you need people be impressed with the fact that if you're alcoholic, you don't ever have to drink again. Relapse is not part of recovery. Okay? It will happen, but you don't have to. But about five years ago, I had occasion in the middle of a rather serious illness, for whatever the reasons, and I won't bore you with them, to have to leave home and group and support and go from Colorado to North Carolina, where they don't even speak English. They... <laughs> I got down there, and they weren't doing AA right either. Uh, starting a whole new job in a whole new area. Well, I was sick. And uh, eventually I got out of my own head and became part of what was going on down there, which was good stuff. I'm a step worker. I'd gone through the necessary things to find out why I was being threatened by what was going on there and what was turning me into a jerk. Uh, I was when I get frightened, I become a big book Nazi. Okay, that's my defense. <laughs> yeah, you too. I know. <laughs> Got it all straightened out. Began sponsoring some people, and the way I sponsor is simple. If I'm going to sponsor, you have to show up at my house at inconvenient times. And I will read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, to you, because that's what was done for me, out loud, because I know you don't know how to read. <laughs> and you and I together will do everything that it says for as long as you can stand it. And I will continue on, because I can stand it all. 
And then you and I will begin to make prison meetings and detox meetings and all kinds of things because I know something. The minute you find God, you got to go tell somebody about it. You have to. You don't have any choice. <clears throat> and I want to show you where we're supposed to go. Anyway, I was sponsoring people. I had a little big book workshop going before the regular meeting. I was part of things. Work was going well. And I was dying spiritually, and I didn't understand it. And I remember talking to one of the fellows one morning, and I said, I don't get this. I've become a good demonstration for God. What's wrong? And I've been taught to listen to myself. And I heard what I said. I had become a good demonstration for God, and that's what was wrong. This isn't about me demonstrating for God what I can do. It's about God demonstrating through me what he can do. Got that straight, and I'm okay now. I hope you don't have to leave home in order to get that simple message. <laughs> I woke up one morning. I've been living with a consciousness of the presence of God for 30 years. I can't tell you much about it except that where I am, God is, and I know that. There's no question about it. Whether I feel good or bad or don't feel at all, it doesn't matter. That's just a fact. <clears throat> And one morning at 6 o'clock in the morning in North Carolina, I woke up, and it wasn't there. And it didn't frighten me, and I don't know why it didn't frighten me, but it didn't. But I have some habits that I've developed here. I instantly began to pray. It's a good habit to get. And the prayer was simple. I need to know you're here. I need to get closer to you. I need to know you better. And my phone rang at 6 in the morning. And it was Billy. And Billy said, I was seven years sober last week, and I drank. And Alan was 12 years sober, and he drank. And we got another fellow in our group that's getting ready to drink. And some of the guys tell us that every now and then, you all get together with people, and you all go through the big book together over a weekend, and somehow they quit drinking. Would you do that with us? And I got another habit. I said, sure. And then my, I went back to praying. Need to know you're here. Need to be closer to you. Need to know you better. And the phone rang. And I had a hard time getting dressed that morning because the phone kept ringing until I finally got the message. <laughs> okay. If you would know me better, get to know my children better. If you'd be close to me, be with my children. Yeah. So you all are a gift to me this morning. I've spent five minutes trying to tell you how much I love you because you are a gift to me. From the moment that God awakened in me and I awakened to that fact, I've had to tell people about it, and you've given me an opportunity to do that this morning. Without you, it would curdle, and I'd really be ugly. Did you ever see a spiritual person that doesn't tell anybody about it? They get really ugly. I'm an alcoholic that did not know I was alcoholic. <clears throat> When I came to you, and I didn't come looking for you, why would I? I didn't know I was an alcoholic. You came and found me, and at the time you found me, I had been certified by one government agency as a sociopath type 2. I don't know what that is, but it's not good. <laughs> a federal parole officer had me labeled as a psychopath. And the doctors had me down as a 
manic depressive drug addict. And all I know is that I was really tired. Uh, so your coming to find me was really important to me. I would not have looked for you, ever. So I'm one of those alcoholic members of Alcoholics Anonymous that goes trolling for drunks. And the best place to find them, of course, is AA meetings. They're full of people who don't know they're alcoholic. They've been told that, they'll say that, but they don't know what the hell that means. And so they wonder, well, am I or am I not? And if an alcoholic wonders, am I or am I not, they're bound to take the test someday to find out. Bound to. And uh, they may die. <clears throat> so let me tell you briefly about my alcoholism. I was in my first federal penitentiary when I was 19 years old because of alcoholism, because I am an alcoholic, not because I was a big-time gangster. I've been in three penitentiaries, and I'm not a big-time gangster. The big-time gangsters don't even go once. See? <laughs> when I begin to drink alcohol, I can't stop. I can't stop. I get lost and I can't find my way home. And when you're in the Navy, that's a felony. <laughs> they, they would, I, had, I had run away from home when I was 17 because Denver was too small for me. Uh, I'd been kicked out because we missed a lot of school. We'd started drinking and kept missing school. Joined the Navy to save America from the communist menace <laughs> and uh, come home a hero. Oh, God, I wanted to be somebody's hero. You guys know what I'm talking about. There's a picture that goes with hero. I would come back after fighting the foreign wars in my little blue uniform, my little white hat cocked just a little bit off to the right so it made this eye squinch in Bogart style. <laughs> And I'd sort of ease down the street. Slight limp, as represented by this purple metal here. That's the one I got for throwing myself on the hand grenade to save my platoon. <laughs> and I'd go by the guys and I could hear them say it. There he is. That's him. <laughs> He's my friend. He lets me talk to him even. <laughs> and I'd go by that little group of girls and there's a sound that I just yearn for. <sighs> <laughs> Hey, come on, at 17, that's not a bad dream at all. And at 19, I was in a federal penitentiary in Tokyo, Japan. Because I took a drink of alcohol in Long Beach, California, on a 24-hour liberty. And 22 days later, I was still on that drunk in Pershing Square in Los Angeles and could not go back to that ship for any reason whatsoever. I wasn't through. And on day 23, my madness was gone, and I turned myself in and went back. 
That's alcoholism. I found that in the doctor's opinion in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. He talks about men who had worked on a business deal that would be settled favorably to them on a certain date. And they took a drink a day or two before and they missed their appointment. And I began to catch. That's what it is. <clears throat> I don't believe for one minute that I ever intended to do all the things that I did while I was drinking. One of the things that used to drive me crazy is that I did things that were out of character. See, I'm truly a decent human being. That's all I've ever wanted to be, was a Boy Scout. I'm the kind of Boy Scout who's a little warped, however. You know, I'll try to help you across the street before I ask you whether you want to go or not. Yeah, it's not in my nature to pay the price. I just want the results. I come from a family of musicians. In fact, my brother is one of the foremost synthesizer musicians in the world. And I say that because I watch what they do with him. They just took him to Russia the last two years to teach for a month in Moscow and then the Scandinavian countries. He was writing music with Stan Kenton when he was 19 years old. Booker for the Army Band at 21. He grew up right down the hall from me, next room over. <laughs> Apparently, it wasn't all that terrible treatment I got as a child. <laughs> okay. My sister, Lord love her. She retired from IBM as one of their executives. She's now selling real estate just to keep busy. She made big money, great babies. Her babies have been busy making babies. They do that. I was at a family function a while back, and here's all these little people who look a lot like me. <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> We're having difficulty finding husbands for these babies because you young guys are nuts. <laughs> but in my family, the attitude when a baby shows up is, isn't that nice? There's another little Prince baby. Let's raise it. See, I come from a functional home. I apologize. <laughs> Doesn't mean we didn't have difficulty in my home. The human condition brings with it a very low tolerance for any kind of pain, whether it be heat, psychic, emotional, and uh, pain causes people to have difficulty. One of the things in, in getting straight with my dad that has struck me, see, my dad and grandpa back in the late 20s and early 30s were the head of the Colorado Ku Klux Klan. They had some really funky ideas. Then my dad awakened spiritually, and those ideas changed. And he took his robes off. And I got thinking one day how terrible it would have been, and I did this for years, had I left the robes on him after he had taken them off. That's part of what making amends does, getting straight with these things. Because I carry those robes my whole life. When something happens to me when I'm six, and I'm so bloody important to this universe, that at 46, I'm still gnawing on that six-year-old thing, and it's now completely out of proportion. I said hi to you, and you were busy and didn't say hi back. And 40 years later, I was mistreated. Thank <laughs> you.
Don't tell me you don't have that happen once in a while. <laughs> I didn't fit in that family. And I've always found that interesting because today as I look back over, if I got to make a list of the qualities of the family that I wish I'd have been raised in, hell, that's the one I was raised in. My parents give you an idea of the kind of love we had. My dad had gangrene in one leg. And, I mean, he was, he was ready to go. It was long overdue. But they had their 66th wedding anniversary on Saturday, and he stuck around for the party. And then Tuesday went into his coma and then left us on Thursday. Uh, and I didn't fit. <laughs> That's, I call that commitment. I uh, spent a lot of time wondering when my people were going to get back from outer space and pick me up. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't think like you thought, and I didn't feel like you felt. I'm uh, inappropriate is what I grew up feeling. You know, when, when you laugh at funerals and cry out hockey games, people look at you funny. Well, then I discovered you, and you're as goofy as I am, so I'm fine here. I brought all this to alcohol. I was a mess before I ever got to alcohol. I cannot blame alcoholism on me being a mess. It just made it okay. Used to hear this stuff. I had mean sponsors. They told me the truth. <laughs> I was telling him one time about something I had done because I'd been drinking. He says, oh, baloney. That's cleaned up. He says, you didn't do that because you were drinking. You were drinking because you were too much of a coward to do it sober. And he was right. <laughs> Absolutely dead on right. So somewhere 15, 16 years of age, I didn't fit front hall or back hall. I was hanging out with six guys who didn't belong anywhere either. We were just running amok and angry at everybody. You know, when you don't fit, there's only one proper emotional response. Rage. Yeah. When you don't belong anywhere, it pisses you off. Okay. And that's a very appropriate response. So we'd run around cussing everybody else. If I can't be you, I'm going to be better than you or you're going to be less than me one or the other whichever works best I will continue to separate myself from you we got a guy from our Air Force base to buy us a bottle of whiskey bonded bourbon we're going to go out east of Denver and drink it and get drunk and have fun we didn't know what that meant but the big guy said that was the deal so we did that and I had the experience that night that's found in the book Alcoholics Anonymous what Carl Jung describes as a spiritual experience. Ideas and emotions that rule the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, and an entirely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them. I was transformed. I just didn't feel better. I was different. I went into the evening angry and frightened and stupid and short and ugly and angry. And a couple drinks of bonded bourbon. <laughs> and I, I've got plans now. <laughs> hmm? 
I love it when you laugh it tells me I'm in the right place look at the non-alcoholics around you they're sitting there saying what do you say See, there was this bully in my class that had been treating me rather poorly. And at that point, I thought I was a coward, so I just let him do it. And now, all of a sudden, I'm going to meet him back at the drive-in, and I'm going to whip him in front of everybody. No small plans here. <laughs> and I could have done it. There's no question. And there was a little girl in my class who hadn't been treating me at all. And... Uh, <laughs> We were going to have a visit, and I could have done that, too. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. If one works, take ten. That's not a slogan. That's in my genes. I don't even think it. It just happens. God can use that, you know. He does. There's times he used that to get me out of bed to go do some kind of service for him when I really didn't want to go. <laughs> so he'd tickle my ego a little bit. My ego gets me here. God shows up after I'm here. Okay. He's with me all the time, but I sometimes have to be goosed. I want to give you a number of gifts, I hope, along the way this morning and not just chatter at you. I'm going to give you one of the prayers that has helped me to understand some things. See, at my very best, there's self-interest. I can't help it. I believe the spiritual life actually is one of enlightened self-interest. I finally have discovered that the best way for me to get mine is to make sure you get yours. That's just enlightened self-interest. Now, there's more to it than that, but that's a good place to start. So there's mornings I wake up and I know God's got work for me to do and I don't want to do it. I want to stay in bed. I'm just a little kid. I'm tired. I don't want to do this today. You've been pushing me for 10 years way beyond my capacity. Give me a break. I don't want to do this. And I can talk with him like that, you know. And then I've learned to say, I really don't want to do this. I really, truly don't. But because of what you have done for me, I'll go do this one for you. And it changes me. So if you get in a bind, try it. May or may not work. It's worked for me. Well, I don't think I ever got back to whip the guy. What happened is that I drank too much that night and nearly died of acute alcohol poison. And what the folks in the drive-in saw, instead of me whipping the bully and visiting with the girl, was my partners hauling me around by the elbows while I puked in the driveway. And now you know how I drank. Always too much. Always past what reasonable people would drink. <laughs> it's crude, but everybody here will understand it. My wife, if she ever drank and vomited, would never, ever drink again. It is in my genes. It's in my blood. There have been times when I would drink and it was time to quit because my body was saying, one more and we'll die on you. And so I would stick my finger down my throat to make room because I wasn't through drinking. 
That's going past the effect produced by alcohol. That's alcoholism. The Chinese described it perfectly. Man takes a drink. Drink takes a drink. Drink takes the man. And alcoholism is a drink taking a drink. And I don't have any power or choice over that. And I've got it. And if you've got it, let me give you some good news. You're doomed. There's no treatment for that. To this day, we can put on a man on the moon, but we haven't come up with anything that will make it possible for me to put alcohol in my body and not have my body say, more. <laughs> now. The thing I wanted more than anything in my life was to be a good father and a good husband. And I couldn't pull it off. I made babies. Well, that's easy. It wasn't until I finished the sex inventory that I understood it was lucky because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. (laughs) Come on, guys, I'll own up to it. I learned about women from men who don't know anything at all about women. (laughs) And I'm expected to have a good relationship? Come on. I finally got smart. I started learning about women from a woman, and I've been married to her for 22 years now, and we haven't had a fight yet. I promise you we haven't. She's right most of the time anyway. (laughs) She thinks I'm the cutest thing she's ever seen. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) I tried so hard to be straight, to provide for my family, to be a good father. I really tried. Until I got sober, I was a quick study and off the line, I'm really good. I can fail and get up, and in a matter of weeks, you forget the failure because I'm really doing good. I was a sprinter in the game of life. And we'd be fine, and I think the greatest damage I did to the people that loved me the most, my family, was that I kept getting up. And they'd get new hope again. Boy, looks like he's going to make it this time. And then they'd get distracted, and I'd get distracted, and I'd follow my butt again, and then I'd get up. And the day finally came, thank God, that I couldn't get up anymore. I get frustrated up here, I must tell you. I've been living with a sense that where I am, God is, for so long that I have. 24 hours of things to tell you about and I get an hour what I want to tell you about is what's happened to me since I died Christmas week in 1967 was the end of the road for me I just couldn't bounce anymore and I did not get sober because of the truth I'm here because I finally ran out of lies okay For those of you who need to go that far, 
I was on federal parole on aid to dependent children. I was now also injecting speed. I'm not a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic who along the way has had a lot of experience with drugs, but that's something I don't talk about much from here. If you want to talk about that, I'll be glad to somewhere else. I couldn't get out of bed without a shot of speed to get me up so I could go steal something so we could put together enough money to get enough booze so I could come back and go back to sleep. Get some groceries along the way. And this was my life. 133 pounds. But I'd have told you, the boys and I are okay. The family's intact. What do you mean there's something wrong? No, it was not an intact family. It was two little boys living with a madman. Coming from a functional home, I know what Christmas is supposed to look like. It always looked like that where I grew up. Big tree they bring in from the outside. Smells like spruce. We have spruce in my country. Decorated. Do you ever sew popcorn together and make long strings of it and put it on the tree? And there's lights and it's warm and the house smells good. There's apple cider with cinnamon in it and hot chocolate with marshmallows. Real marshmallows, not these sissy things. <laughs> people would come by and visit with my folks people loved my folks my dad was a character he was an unmeasured genius they tried and couldn't find a test to measure him and he found ways to make himself just one of the guys which made him a character okay. and people loved him and they loved my mother and they'd come by and visit. Hell, in my home Christmas week in 1967, nobody came by except the 16-year-old kid that I'd turned on and I was using as a runner because I couldn't do it anymore. Even my parole officer wouldn't come by. He made me go see him. But we're all right. On the 24th, we uh, took a walk because Dad was restless, irritable, and discontent. That's not a description. That's a living lifestyle. So we walked a lot. And in that walk, I found a dollar in the snow, and we went to the Christmas tree place to see what we'd get for a dollar because we didn't have a tree. The welfare check hadn't gotten there. <clears throat> and this very kind man gave us the biggest tree on the lot for a dollar. And I'm an alcoholic. I took the biggest one. <laughs> and I, love, I keep the image fresh in my mind. We had a seven-foot ceiling and a nine-foot tree in it. <laughs> <laughs> decorated with junk and stuff I'd managed to add a man at the place called the public merchandise mart another kind man you want to remember at this time I hated everybody this very kind man gave me a little pair of cowboy boots and a little shirt so each of my boys would have a Christmas present on credit I didn't have any money and the boys had wrapped up everything that would fit in blue paper towel and put it under the tree for me. And I began to break. Christmas Day, we went to my folks. It would never occur to me not to go to my folks' place on Christmas. And my dad met us at the door and said, Don, I'm sorry, but your mother said I can't let you in here anymore. She can't stand watching you die. And the lie went. The lie was simple. Leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody but me. And suddenly that's a lie. I could see what I'd done to the people that I loved and the people around me and to my kids. And then my dad broke my last lie because he snuck us into the basement. And I would have told you that morning, 
Nobody cares about us. Nobody loves us. And he did. He made a lie out of that. So I went home after that short visit, filled with self-pity. What's left? (laughs) Then we passed the self-pity into the truth. And the truth was, at that particular moment, there was no reason for me to be here. There truly wasn't. I had become absolutely, completely useless. I believe the bottom of all human pain is the moment when you know I am useless. That's it. All we promise you here, after you're sober, is that you can find a useful way of life. And if you can be useful, you can live. Let me tell you something that's frightening me these days. I'm watching people with 30 and 35 and 40 years of sobriety blowing their brains out. Drinking is no longer an option for them. But they stop being useful. And they end up having to die. That's awful. So let me, let me make a request, because you're being kind to me. You keep me busy. Please keep those of us who've been around here for a while busy. Because if I ever get useless again, I'll die again. And I don't want to give it up. You know how to, how to keep us busy? Invite us someplace. Cater to our little egos. We tell you new people, we need you. We do. We need you to tell us, we need you old timers. What do you think about this, Don? Oh, God, I love that question. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The power of God went to my work in my life that day. I believe it's all about power. Lack of power is my dilemma. Well, I have found power. And I am a power seeker and always have been and always will be. And it's about power. I woke up the next morning. What I did that night because I couldn't continue to live is that I took a two-month supply of the garbage I was using and shot it up my arm and drank everything in the house and I laid down and I died. And I truly believe I died because I've not had a drink or a pill or a fix or even thought of one from that time on. But I didn't feel good when I woke up in the morning. I wasn't supposed to. And the police were at the door, and I knew I wasn't dead. We talk to you about spiritual experiences, you new people. We make them sound like they're fun. Don't you believe it? Getting born is never fun. The first thing that happens every time I awaken spiritually, and there's more than one, by the way, is I think, oops, I've lost my mind. And the reason I think that is because I have. Whatever I was using before that is now gone. And I got a new one. I don't know what to do with it. So I pray and I talk to people who've been on the path ahead of me. <clears throat> and I'm real picky about who I talk with. Okay? you got to understand, I love Alcoholics Anonymous, but Alcoholics Anonymous did not get me sober. I was five and a half months sober before you found me. I belong to Alcoholics Anonymous because this is where God brought me and you have shown me how to make my life mean something. So I adore you and I belong to you. But if you think I'm going to trust my life to you, you're crazier than hell. (laughs) I sit around in your meetings and you tell me over and over again, 
I don't know how to run my life. Why would I give you mine? (laughs) Together something good happens, and I'm not putting down meetings. But I've seen meetings kill people. If meetings actually did the job, then everybody who went to a meeting would never drink again, would they? Without meetings, we will all drink. Please don't misunderstand me. But there's more to it than not drinking. I would never promise anyone just sobriety, except on the first, second, or third day when that really all accounts. Because I'm an alcoholic, and sobriety is in a completely impossible state of being for me. It hurts too much. Meaningful sobriety, that's different. But just sobriety, the reason I drink is because I can't stand just sobriety. I had a psychiatrist one time want want me to get in touch with my feelings. Please. (laughs) The problem is, when I'm sober, I'm in touch with all of them all at once. And I don't know whether I'm afraid or happy or turned on. Hell, I don't know. All I know is I can't stand this. Anyway, God went to work. And I say that because I watch for power. I was on federal parole when, when this all happened, and I owed the federal government five years. A little indiscretion I committed in 1966. And uh, the state had, yeah, nine charges. One of them called for three years to life in the penitentiary, and the DA promised me to bring the rest of them one at a time, but I was through. And I really didn't care. What happened to me Christmas night in 1967 is I finally surrendered totally. When I woke up, I was in a wonderful state. Didn't feel good. But I'm in a body that won't die yet, carrying with it a mind that won't work ever. Okay. I was willing to go anywhere anyone said and do anything anyone said if it meant I didn't have to be me anymore. And that was just the state of being. I couldn't have put that into words. I detoxed in the Denver County Jail. Good place to do it. Don't ever forget it. Six weeks of leg cramps and headaches. It just, I mean, it was horrible. It's not the worst I've ever done, though. I don't believe it will keep me sober. But it's made me a better sponsor. So you can come to me at five weeks of leg cramps and headaches and say, I'm dying. But I can look you in the eye and say, not yet. <laughs> you got a week to go. <laughs> By being willing to go wherever I was sent, a remarkable thing took place because they called me in on the day of my trial in a little room with my lawyer and the district attorney. And they said, look, we've been talking to the federal people, and they knew me pretty well. And we've all concluded you're really sick. I agreed. No question about that. I've known that for years, too. And we worked out a deal. The federal people have agreed if you'll plead guilty to a little reduced charge we have here for you, we'll give you a year and a half to three, suspend it, give you back to the feds, and they'll take you to Fort Worth, Texas to the hospital and fix you. I signed right there. I'm not an idiot. 
Federal Hospital in Texas beats the penitentiary. <clears throat> now, if you know about power, you know what should have happened next. Don should have gone from Denver to Fort Worth, Texas. The power of the state and the power of the federal government both went to work. And five days after that, I'm in the fish tank in the Colorado State Penitentiary. I actually heard myself say, you can't do this to me. <laughs> I didn't have a firm grasp of reality yet. <laughs> and you came looking for me. I didn't come looking for you. You came after me. You sent three of you. And you weren't angelically looking people. You was ugly. <laughs> Bad numbers on their chest. And they had a... You know, convicts in, in a penitentiary in their own clothes are a little intimidating. Smiling convicts are downright frightening. <laughs> These guys had that grin that, if you want to be a good sponsor, cultivate it. It says, I know something you don't know. And if you don't get it now, you might not live through the day. They were dead serious. <clears throat> they called us down. They said, uh, you people will come down. You will listen. And I went down, didn't have anything else to do, and I listened. First time in my life, I listened. If you're new here, please, it's all you have to do here. Listen. This whole thing is about clearing away the things that keep me from listening to the voice of God. I've become a listener. He talks through you most of the time, because he knows if it comes from out here, I'm liable to do weird things with it. I'll interpret this. I need to learn to listen. And the guy got up and he said, my name's Doc and I'm an alcoholic. And that means that I'm powerless over alcohol and guards and drugs and all of the other circumstances in my life. And it, my life has become unmanageable. And if any of you smart bastards think you can still manage your lives, look at the reward the state just gave you for the nifty job you did. <laughs> and I heard him. Your very best thinking got you to the penitentiary. You're not doing too good, are you? I heard him. Now, those would be cruel words if it weren't that they had an answer to follow it up with. Your best thinking got you here. You're not doing too well, are you? But we can show you a new way of thinking. We can show you how to learn to live a way of life that will make sense to you, to anybody. I am pleased to tell you that today my life doesn't make sense to a lot of people. I much don't give a damn. It makes sense to me and her. Makes sense to my daughters. Apparently my boss likes me. I've resigned twice this year and he won't let me go. <laughs> I think that's funny. Every time I resign, I get a better job. <laughs> I hope he doesn't hear this tape. <laughs> See, I work in corrections now. Go figure. <laughs> we were not allowed to go to Alcoholics Anonymous right off the bat. They had a real meeting on Friday night where real people came in from the outside and we would do an hour and they would do an hour. We weren't allowed to go to that. You had to qualify for that. We had to spend five weekends giving up our yard privileges and our movies and go through a 12-step study school. Okay. Uh, my friend Jim and I went over. The first thing they said is, you knew guys for five weeks have nothing to say. If you knew anything at all, you wouldn't be here. And they took the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they read it out loud to us. And then they shared their experience of it and showed us the directions on what to do. And in five weeks, 
we had completed what's in this book. There's no definitive deal. It's not a race for anything. And I had a series of awakenings. I found out about alcoholism. You taught me about that. The physical allergy that I have and the strange mental obsession that I have. My main problem centers in my mind. Why in the world would I use this to solve this? You can't solve the problem with the problem. You've got to solve the problem with the answer. And the answer is a consciousness of the presence of God, however you conceive that to be. And I had to get rid of all my conceptions of God first. I had created God in my own image, and it was not, uh, it was not cool. Well, most of us do. Yeah. My sponsor destroyed all my conceptions of God one afternoon. I didn't have anything left. And I screamed at him, you're asking me to turn my life over to the care of nothing. And he said, why not? Nothing can run it better than you've been doing it. <laughs> he always seemed to have an answer. He also knew something about us. He knew I had a lingering reservation that had to do entirely with how do I look. Okay? Hey, isn't that where most of us fall flat on our butts? I'm more interested in how I look or how you think I look than how I'm doing. Okay. And he knew that. We found it. I, I was truly concerned, even at that time, that if I gave my life over entirely to the care of God, he had work for me to do, and I knew what it was and I didn't want the job. He'd put me on the corner of Colfax and Broadway handing out Watchtower magazines. <laughs> Asking strangers, have you been saved, brother? And my image of that at the time was the old boy that I saw doing it. Wore a brown suit, brown hat, brown shoes. Was making a fool of himself out there, and I didn't want to do that. I had this palatial apartment in cell B49 right of the Colorado State Penitentiary. <laughs> and he did a sponsor thing. He said, oh, well, let's talk about that. Uh, if you're new here, let me tell you something. That does not mean let us talk about that. You have nothing to say. <laughs> Truth without love is cruelty. Confrontation without a real answer is brutality. But he loved me and he had a real answer and he didn't hesitate for a second. He said, Don, do you suppose that that guy down there at Colfax and Broadway handing out watchtowers this morning had breakfast where he wanted to? And I said, probably. And he said, well, you didn't. <coughs> Do you suppose that man is humiliating himself? He's wearing clothes he picked out to do it in. I said, yeah, probably. He said, you're not. Do you suppose when he's all through making a fool of himself that he gets to go home? And man, he had me because I didn't. We are promised a new mind here. And one of the legacies that Ann Smith left us is that please don't wake somebody else up and then walk away from them. Walk with them for a while. You don't wake a baby up and dump them. Okay? And that's what he was doing. He was walking with me through his own experience. He brought me into my new mind and helped lay the foundation for it. It's simple. It's in the third step prayer under different words. Anything at all that God has in mind for me is better than anything at all that I will ever have in mind for me. Period. Party's over. And I truly live that way and have been for 30 years. I'm not perfect at it. 
God, there's nothing more fun than getting a little rebellious <laughs> spiritually. And I began to wake up to some things. And one of the things that I, I need you to know, most of you already know it, but you don't know it. I wasted a lot of years thinking that I was a human being trying to have a spiritual experience, and I had bunches of them. The truth is I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. And what that does is make me fully available to the human experience. Don't get a hold of that unless you're ready for all the joy and all the pain and all the flat times you can stand, because you're going to have them all. Okay. I was telling Jackie the other day, this, this is probably the most interesting planet I've ever lived on. <laughs> And I've given thought to coming back, maybe <laughs> only this time rich so I could travel and see it. And she laughed at me and says, hell, you're doing that now on other people's money. <laughs> I began to waken. Series of little things. Said the third step prayer and had a terrible experience. You know, I went back to my cell and said the prayer and I really meant it. And I said it and waited for my flash of light. And nothing happened. And I went back to my sponsor and complained. That's what I was taught to do. If you do what your sponsor tells you to do and you don't get the results you think you ought to get, go bitch at him. Where's mine, Bruce? He said, you dummy. That's a step up. Well... In the morning, I'm 38,984 because my behavior has even taken my name from me. Now I'm dummy. He really loved me. <laughs> Said, you dummy, you ought to be grateful you didn't have a flash of light. It really killed you all your life. <laughs> and we discussed flashes of light that I've had. He's right. He said, God knows that you can't stand one more big shock in the shape you're in anyway. And he spent some time describing to me how it had been for him, gently. And that's how it's been for me. If you come to me, we'll do a lot of technical stuff, but I'll spend most of my time telling you how gentle God has been with me. God never tests me. I test him all the time. Okay? And I suggest that. Never te- never yells at me, ever. I hear people who think that God hits them with a two-by-four. Jeez, I feel bad for you. I really do. He speaks so quietly that my job is to clear my mind so I can hear the voice. And usually, it's saying, here's something you missed, kid. You see, it's all about being separated from God and from you. That's what the steps are about. To clear away the things that are separating us that are keeping us from simply accepting each other as we are. Can you imagine if we got everybody here sane and straight, how dull we'd be? (laughs) Lord. God sends me the psychopaths. I love them. Mm. There's nothing like a 2.30 in the morning phone call. I remember this one lunatic called me. I'm outside the bitch's house.
I'm getting ready to go in and burn it to the ground. <laughs> I don't have time to think. What, how are you going to think with something like that at 2.30 in the morning? <laughs> I have a habit. When I wake up, the first thing I do is pray. It's a habit. And that's what I did. And I heard this come out of my mouth. I said, you son of a bitch. You called me at 2.30 in the morning and woke me and my whole family to tell me something we could have read about in a morning paper. <laughs> Don't do that unless you understand what's behind it. 7.30 in the morning, this big hulk is walking up our sidewalk come to apologize to me and all seven children and my wife. I've learned to count on that kind of thing. I could never think of anything that good. <laughs> I've got a couple minutes left to tell you what I wish I'd have started with at the very beginning. My dad died a year, and a, a year ago in March. And it was a good death. It took a couple days, and we finally got him to take him off the tubes and stuff. He was tired. He wanted to go home. You know, I say it was a good death because the family was all there. My family's intact again. And because of our attitude and our understanding of life and death, we were able to be there for the grandchildren who didn't understand what was happening to Grandpa. And the family was together. That was the big deal while we waited for him to just leave at his convenience. And, uh, and he did. And I had an experience that just thrills me because I had suspected it would be this way. There was nothing left for me to say to my dad. It was done. I don't have to go to his grave and say, Papa, we should have said this or done this. Because when I went to him to make amends directly, he told me what I had to do with him. I had my stuff, and he saw it, and he said, Look, all you can do by telling me all the details is hurt me all over again. You and I will have to start from here, and we did. We started from there. And we had a day-by-day -day relationship that was complete. And there was nothing left to say. I trapped him in his office one day. Uh, my dad came out of the depression and was not a demonstrative man. He was a very loving man, but he didn't touch much. And I backed him into his office where he couldn't get by me, and I said, Papa, I need to tell you something. I have three heroes, and you're one of them. And we cried and touched. And a couple weeks later, I was hugging my mother goodbye, and he looked up and he said, you suppose I could have one of those? This is so much more than don't drink and go to meetings. So much more. It wasn't always fun. He called me one day. They wouldn't let him drive anymore. He was getting where he couldn't see, and his reflexes, which you and I do like that, took him about a minute and a half. They wouldn't let him drive. And he called me, and I, by now I'm a successful businessman. i got things to do, and people see it. I'm busy, 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 busy. He says, could you do me a favor? i, I got a couple little errands to run. Yeah, sure, Pop. And I wasn't feeling, yeah, sure, Pop. But that's a habit. I say, yes, sir. Yeah, sure, Pop. Well, he had this card from Radio Shack. 
And if we drive for 20 minutes out to the mall, they'd give him a free D-cell battery and punch the card. <laughs> and he had, he, had to, he had it mapped out. We had a two-hour drive going from Radio Shack to Radio Shack. And he and I visited along the way. I was a little grumpy. And then it hit me, because God works this way for me. It comes into my mind what's really going on if I'm willing, and I am willing to listen. <clears throat> and I stopped being grumpy, because my dad and I got to spend two hours together visiting. And I got to go full circle. See, there was a time they wouldn't let me drive either. I was just a little kid. And my Red Rider decoder ring needed fixed. <laughs> And he stopped work where he's putting food on our table to take me down to get the damn thing fixed. It all goes full circle if you let it. The making of amends is, I was told never, never, never was to, I was ever to say, I'm sorry. I don't get to do that. He says, you've been sorry your whole life. He gave me an exercise that set me free while I was locked up one night, literally free. I felt lifted off a chair because I am truly willing to look any human being on this planet right in the eye, and if I've caused you any harm at all, you tell me what I have to do and we'll get it square. Okay. I don't crawl before any man, but whatever it takes, we'll get it square. What you do when you get that attitude is you become a listener. It made it possible for me to make amends to my mother. Remember, I put her in a spot on Christmas Day to say, you and your kids can't come to my house. How do you clean that one up? There's no way. Well, I learned to listen. I found a way to ask her one day, way down the line, what I had to do. She said, honey, all I've ever wanted for you is that you be happy. So I've been going by my mother's house happy for 27 years <laughs> on a regular basis. And that's the key. It's regular. See, this is about changing. You couldn't count on me. Now you can. That's spiritual stuff okay do you ever hang around spiritual people they're really irritating <laughs> they tell you precisely what they're going to do and then they do it and they tell you what they won't do and you can't get them to do it no matter what you say they're always on time damn that's irritating I was with a kid the other day. We have a place for people with serious garlic deficiencies in Denver called Dario's Restaurant. And, uh, <laughs> sometimes my feet hurt. So, and there's never a place to park. But this particular day I was taking one of the guys I sponsored to lunch so we could talk about that. And uh, we had to drive up. It's only a couple blocks. But we drove up, and just as we got in front, a car pulled out, and we parked. And he said, isn't that nice? God got us a parking place. I don't believe that for one second. We were on time. Had we been a minute later, we'd have gone on by it. A minute earlier, the guy in front of me would have gotten it. We were on time. Okay. I love being on time. It's the only time anything can happen, you know. <laughs> it's either about to or just did. <laughs> but if you get on time, it's happening. My family is now intact, for true. 
my boys haven't called me for two years. We made peace, and then for whatever the reason, they don't call. It's okay. I've done all I can do. I heard Chuck one time. He said, there's nothing we can do about what we did to our children. It's done. All we can do is create an arena where they have the opportunity to also heal, and we call that home. And we've been in the same place for 22 years, just about. We, uh, my daughters are grown. One of them's working as a biologist and chasing boys, and the other one found one. <laughs> we now have new babies running in our house. And I love having new babies around. I really love having babies around. Uh, I hear babies. They are direct. There's no pretense. My 15-year-old granddaughter the other day, I'm under the sink doing some plumbing. She waddles over with tools that are almost too big. <laughs> I did what she said and it quit leaking. <laughs> I was told I was to never have my children again, ever. That I was never to try to do anything that would make that happen. I have six grandchildren now. They brought them back to me two and a half years sober when I was house father of a recovery house. But let me sum it up for you, the granddaughter. I now work in corrections. I worked for the Department of Corrections in North Carolina for two years. And now I'm court liaison to the Denver Drug Court and work in community corrections. I just, I spend more time in prisons now than I did when I was doing time. <laughs> Talk about an attitude change. I used to lay there thinking, how can I get out of here? And now I spend a lot of time thinking, I wonder how I can get in there. But this particular morning, uh, they taught me how to dress, and I was dressed. I had to go see a judge. He and I had some things that needed discussed, and I wanted to look good. If you can talk to the judge, you might as well look good. And I had my fine coat and my fine tie on, and as I get ready to leave the house, my daughter handed me the baby, and the baby up chucked all over down my front. Now, my normal response to people puking in my lap is not favorable. But what went through my head was, isn't this wonderful? They trust me with their babies. Hmm. You and I have babies here. Talk to Fatima about babies. She knows. They come to us, fresh, reborn, minds wide open. We must be very, very careful of them. And, and walk with them on a regular basis. Well, I'll tell you what. You can trust me with your babies. I will not hurt them in any way whatsoever. And I need to know I can trust you with my babies, too. Because I'm not all things to all people. I'm just a little kid. Okay. <clears throat> and I need to know that you're trustworthy also. And I do. I trust you completely. Please don't hurt my babies. And I promise I won't hurt yours. I'll tell you about my brother and we'll all go home and have some fun. I'm going to go home and have some fun. <laughs> I have a home. The making of amends sometimes takes a great deal of time because it means setting straight the crooked path, not apologizing. And some people... We have done such things to some people that we're lucky if they ever talk to us again, nor do I ever expect that 
anybody should ever talk to me again. Well, my brother was one of those. God love him. He's a good man. But I was his hero. And he saw me go to the penitentiary when I was 19. And I destroyed his dreams. And he watched what I did to the rest of the family. And he didn't understand. He couldn't. Who could? And so when I finally came out and started making a life, it took him a long time to watch. See, we talk a lot. But what you want to remember is people are watching. And I want to be able to live in such a way that you see the big book before you ever hear me speak about it. Okay, That's the hard job. I can sound really good at this podium or at meetings. What do I do when I walk into work and start catching hell because you didn't do your job? Am I, am I able to walk at them? No. Anyway, 22 years, my brother finally had Jackie and I over for dinner one night. And when we were through, he said to me, I'm not sure you and I can ever be friends. But this was nice. We can do this again. And so the door was open. While I was in North Carolina, I still visit the folks regularly. Please get regular with what you do. Anyway, I'm visiting with my mom. And my brother came in and sat down. And, and I had my leg crossed like you do. And all of a sudden, he reached across and kicked me on the bottom of the shoe and said, you know, Don, I'm really glad to see you. And he was surprised, because he really was. It was a brand new experience for him. <laughs> he said, look, next time you're in town, why don't you and I just go up to the cabin and we'll do a little fishing? And so I came back into town. We went up to this little cabin. We didn't do much fishing. We sat around all day and played cribbage and talked and talked and talked. And he gave me the most precious gift I have ever been given. He gave me who he sees himself as. It's not something you give just anybody. He said, there's something I need you to know, Don. And I'm 56 years old now, and I believe I've made a decent contribution to life. Well, that was a gift to me, a special gift to me because I've been trying for years to tell you how I feel about you. I've told you the story of Michelangelo and the statue of David and the anvil and all that. Well, from my brother, I got it. See, I'm 64 now. And because of you, I believe I've made a decent contribution to life. Thank you. <laughs>